So is your class officially over? Uh, later today. Oh, okay. later today. Yeah. Very yeah. exciting. So this is some pre-roll. This is some true pre-roll. We're doing the true pre-pre-roll. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Just before the pre-roll or after the pre-roll? Uh, <laughs> this is before the roll. Slow so your roll. Pre-roll. Slow it's your roll. Post as they say. pre-roll. No. Which no. is later. That's the show. Yeah, that's the show. Okay. We've not talked to our guest yet. And are we actually recording this right now? Yeah. This oh, wow. is recording. Okay. This is recording. Groovy. This is the show. This is to This is what people tune in for? This is to let our freak flag fly, as they say. <laughs> oh <is> my. The, <laughs> no, but I, I this is gonna be I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I think this is a really great paper. I I agree. I've got some ideas too. And we get, this is one of those that sets off all kinds of ideas. If it, it feels to me like a very significant paper. Yeah. And obviously the, the great lion's share of it comes from the author. Um, but uh, as my comment to Stacey Dogan the other day about, you know, meaning coming from audience, not just from speaker, you know, it, it, things cooperate and things uh, co-occur. And so, so much of the significance of this paper, in my mind, is, is about the moment in which we find ourselves, which is quite different yeah. from... Um, and so there were certain sentences in there that I was like, wow, yep, that's true. <laughs> this is, this is going to be entertaining for people to listen to our musings about the paper that they don't know what it is yet. Yeah. And they usually don't hear us do this. That's right. That's Although right. we, we, Here's we my, usually do. Do you want to see my crazy wall of notes? Do you want to see my crazy wall of notes? I, 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 I did. Oh. I did. I was driven to write some things down and I don't know if you can see here, Joe. Well, I, it's an iPad. Be, it's pretty far away. So yeah, I but can't... I'm going to zoom in. See, this oh, is the magic of the iPad. Do you, do you recognize what that is? Um, it it is a two by two <laughs> table, which is delightful, <laughs> and I know therefore that it contains some very important truth. Because if you want to we'll lay see. down a truth bomb, the way you do that is you make a two by two table. <laughs> we will see. So this is my little teaser to to uh, to uh, of the conversation to follow. Now I saw Listen, an F. Only our show is nerdy enough. Where the teaser is, there may be a two-by-two two box suggestion later in the show. <laughs> yeah. Well. Like, what other show are they going to tease two-by-two two boxes with? What other show is smart enough to tease with two-by-two two boxes? That's <laughs> See, the real you're question. Very, you're complimentary, and I'm thinking, you know, like this, this increases our nichiness, I think. We are a very niche show, don't Here's you think? Here's the awesome thing about a two-by-two two box. <laughs> is... Even if it isn't making you smarter, and it almost certainly is, okay, the the likelihood that it's making you smarter is like 0.99. But even in the instance where it isn't making you smarter, the likelihood that it's making you feel smarter is (laughs) 1.0. Yeah. Well, it is... Name another thing that's that good. (laughs) So I wanted to to say two things in the pre-roll. It wasn't just to kind of, you know, pimp the show that they've already started. (laughs) I mean, they've already started... Like if anything, this will if anything this will derail listening, right? They will you know say, oh, I tuned in because I saw it on Twitter. It's got this great paper and this great person, and these two yeah, you keep know, listening. These two yahoos have started rambling. Keep listening. Yeah, keep listening. Don't you know? Hit the thirty second skip if you're tired of what you've heard so far. Right. But I wanted to I wanted to mention two things. One, yes, we know we're behind on feedback. Yeah, we've been we really owe listeners a. A mailbag. It's time to open up the mailbag, which means, and it's coming, which means if you want to get in on some of that mailbag action, yeah, you got to send, <laughs> you got to send your feedback to oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Now, why not oral argument at gmail.com? Because some jackass took it already, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> but it's oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also at oral argument on Twitter. 
uh, oral argument also on, on Facebook. We got a uh, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos posted his, his content suggestions. Nice. <laughs> and there have been other things, too. So we got, we got stuff to get back to on, on all Did the Did you see the, the Anthony uh, Christ tweet about being on, what was it, Bloomberg? Or? Yeah, I haven't been on Twitter this morning. Okay. This is, I'm disciplining myself to try, try not to do that. But I did, mm. I did get the notification on Slack that that came in, so I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, well, it was, we had this little exchange where he was going to be talking about, you know, Title VII and, and LGBT issues. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I tweeted, like, I hope that the oral argument episode was good prep for that. And he was like, oh, that's my favorite place to be. So uh, nice. And it's nice because we like having him here, too. Okay, He's so awesome. He, You've let things kind of leak out of the mailbag. I did. We that was a little, keep... I, I teased the bag, as you, <laughs> if oh you will. Oh, my God. And okay. uh, let's, I think we need to keep going here. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you notice I sound a little bit stopped up? You do sound a little nasal. I have been stopped up since March. Oh. So this is like a little, I want to take the listeners on this journey. I'm finally, I think, going to go see a doctor about this. Oh, good. I'm I've, glad. I've had like allergies since March. And, and like at well, night, sometimes I've been, I've been wheezing. It's the season for a reason. Yeah. Meredith says I've got some kind of adult onset asthma. She thinks I've got that kind of thing, which means I got to maybe use one of those nebulizer things. You are kidding me. I, I don't know. I mean, I, gotta, I need to go see a doctor. It could be a heart thing, Joe. It could be anything. Wow. So that's a little tease. I will update because as we get older, as we've said before, the show more and more will focus on aggravating health problems. Absolutely. And I, <laughs> and there will be plenty of content. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it'll be just it'll be just Joe. And, it'll be oral argument, but we'll be arguing about like health various health diagnoses and which right. doctors are yokels. Here's and what I think not. you have. Right. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah. Well, please see a doctor. I was terrible about seeing doctors. I'm still not great about it, but I've gotten a lot better in the last few years uh, because I was just being a dope. I'm so, just I'm a dude in his mid 40s who's doesn't go see doctors until it's too late. That's that's prime dope territory. (laughs) And that's where I was. Did Um, did we need that bit of information to conclude that I'm in prime (laughs) dope territory? In fact, if I didn't suspect that that we'd have really great comments and ideas from our guests, I'd be entitled to call the show uh, uh, prime dope territory and mm. just kind of call it a day. Yeah. But all right. Well, let's let's get our let's get our fantastic guest on the on the horn here. Hello. Hello, Daphna. Yes. Did I say your name right? Yes, that is right. Okay. Is awesome. it, now, 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 should we? Now, I'm Christian, by the way, and I'm Joe. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Now, your your last name, um, or your family name, or your last name. Uh, <laughs> oh no no I mean, okay okay yeah I was just gonna say Renan oh it's yes. it's Renan I was not gonna say that but it is Renan <laughs> so we both got that one wrong Joe uh, what what was your guess mine was Renan no no Renan <laughs> his is Renan like like a like an e with an accent uh, agu is that what it is or in like it's raining without a g <laughs> like like it's Renan Daphna. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna that would be a huge disco hit. I was going to say Renan. I, ho- I hope it's not offensive that we didn't like, you know, because this paper is so awesome. Like, it feels like everybody should know your name um, and, and how to pronounce it. But, you know. So it is, sounds French. In, in a way, origin. though, it's like the delightful, like, you know how there are people who have learned words from reading but haven't used them in conversation and then they use them and, and it's like delightfully mispronounced. Yes, I, I actually do that all the time. Is that right? So <laughs> I'm delighted that I'm not the only one. <laughs> No, you should never tease someone for mispronouncing something because that means they learn by reading. Exactly. And being a reader exactly. is great. So just to just to nail it, um, so it, is it is it a French family name? You, you know, it's actually my well. We're getting into my family history. My uh, 
my grandparents were Polish, and when they came to Israel, Israel was changing Polish names to make them sound more Israeli. Oh. And I guess at the time, they decided that Renan sounded more Israeli than Renkowski. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's that's the history of the name. <laughs> Interesting. And there's another, of course, with Wonder Woman, um, and uh, now I'm forgetting her first name, but the new Wonder Woman film, uh, everyone was thinking her uh, family name was French, and it's uh, Israeli as well. Good. Gadot or Gadot, I guess. I can't, now I'm messing it all right, up. But right. uh, but I remember the, this being in the news a few times recently. So this is, I just made the Wonder Woman mistake, we'll call it, um, wow. for, for, for family names. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> just saw that last night with my family. Oh, you, is it good? Okay, so here's what I'm going to say about it. Because, you know, we, we actually, before- Christian, the answer is yes. Before I haven't we, seen it yet, and I know the answer is yes. We, before we got you on, we did a little bit of pre-roll with our, okay. usu- with our usual nonsense that we've been neglecting for far too long. And so we will, we will ex- and, and we've begun this conversation, obviously, with a bunch of new nonsense. And so now I'm going to continue the nonsense. This, for people who are tuning in because they've seen that, well, they're going to talk about this paper, and this paper is so great, I want to hear about this paper. They're like, oh my God, will you just get to it? But- right. But at the risk of extending that frustration even further, I will say, I will say that that, I thought that that, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a huge fan of the Marvel movies in general. I mean, they're okay, but like there's that kind of consistent kind of story beat driven, like formulaic thing. And they're getting pretty bloated. Yeah. And and like, anyway, but, but I'm, I'm not against fun. I like fun popcorn movies as well. I will say, I thought this movie was really great. Oh, wow. Up until, up until maybe the last... 10 minutes. I thought there was one point where they could have changed something which would have made it really different and interesting and they didn't. Okay. But I won't say any more cuz Leah, let me see I'm, it first. I'm totally against spoilers. Yeah. And I love spoilers. All right, all right. well after I see it I'm going to have to send you an email. That's totally. Right. And and me too because I you know, I love spoilers but I don't want this spoil because this sounds like I really want to see if I can find out what the point is. Like and maybe what we'll do I like, a, like an incomparable style, different podcast, Spoiler Horn, on a future yeah, episode. Yeah, it sounds like you might lose some listeners if you tell us the last 10 minutes of Wonder oh, Woman. Yeah, <laughs> De- definitely not going to do that. We're even, definitely... even at this late date. It's been out for a while. I feel bad that I haven't seen it yet, but... Yeah, well... So Daphna, um, this, as Christian has indicated, um, this paper is so awesome, I think, I feel like... I'm hesitant to talk about it because it's so awesome. And I, I have a suggestion for how we should start, oh, which, okay. which would involve Daphna setting things up. Is that okay? okay? That's can, great. Can I suggest? Let's do that. Uh, sure. So, because I think that this paper is has some really great ideas in it that would be accessible to anybody who listens to this show. You know, lawyer or non-lawyer. I mean, there, a lot of this stuff is in the news. Um, a lot of the events that you kind of pull on to describe the dynamics here are things that people are familiar with or have heard about before. Totally. Mm-hmm. And so I think everything would go easier if we start by explaining, and uh, and this is what basically the paper is going to be about, about how these institutions actually work. But the difference between the White House Counsel's Office, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General as head of that, depart- that executive department, um, the Office of Legal Counsel, or OLC, and then also one that I didn't see you talk about in the paper, the Solicitor General's office. So it seems sure. to me that those four institutions are, are kind of the major ones that people might, if they think, you know, who is the president's lawyer or who, who is the lawyer in the executive branch uh, representing the, the government? It, for different questions, you might point to each of those four. And I'm just wondering if we could kind of tour the, what those institutions are and what the differences are. D- is that a reasonable way of kind of getting into the, the meat yeah, of your paper? Yeah, sure. A- absolutely. So... 
The White House Counsel's Office over time becomes more and more of a legal counselor role to the president. It doesn't actually start out that way. Uh, but today it has, uh, it varies a bit in size uh, across administrations, but it, it has anywhere from, you know, 25 to 45 probably lawyers doing a range of things from running the day-to-day kind of legal questions that come up in the operation of the White House. So ethics, compliance, um, contracts, uh, judicial nominations, uh, just the, the range of legal issues that a president and an executive uh, establishment, uh, you know, the cluster of agencies that are in the, the executive office of the uh, the president today have come up day in, day out, as well as over time and, you know, depending on the, the role of the, the White House counsel and the relationship between the White House counsel and the president, uh, the the office has assumed more of a counselor role to the president on the the important and, and national strategic legal questions. And just to, just to be clear, this is an office in the White House. I mean, it's a White House office. Uh, I don't know how many of their actual offices are over in the Eisenhower building across the street and how many are, if if the White House, does the White House counsel have an office in the West Wing? Usually, yes. Um, but, but so these are, you know, the White House offices are distinct from what are kind of quaintly, I guess, called executive departments or what most people think of as agencies within the executive branch, but aren't within, you know, aren't where it's like the chief of staff is not the boss, like the white, the president's chief of staff is not the boss of these other agencies. But I guess the chief of staff is kind of the manager of the White House, right? Yes, that's right. Effectively, the the kind of COO of the White House. If I could jump in just to, it, yeah. it's Bob Bauer, right? Who was uh, President Obama's uh, last White House counsel? He he was uh, one of President Obama's White House counsels, yes. Okay, so he's been doing a bunch of interviews on a bunch of different podcasts lately, like the Ezra Klein podcast that's an interview podcast and some other ones I've heard him on. And so for people who want to hear a former White House counsel just talk through what their job is like and what they do day in and day out, that's a great recent thing you could listen to that you might really enjoy. I certainly learned a lot from listening to them. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, absolutely. So then the the attorney general is the the head of the Justice Department. And from the kind of origins of the office, one of the attorney general's functions was to give uh, opinions when requested by the, the president or the White House complex, as well as the agencies. And for a long time, these were opinions that were uh, written by the attorney general and over time it became the the charge of an assistant solicitor general that was drafting these opinions. Um, It eventually became the role of what is today the Office of Legal Counsel. It it started out as an office by a different name that, that begins really engaging in sort of adjudication when agencies have disagreements uh, executive branch agencies have disagreements about uh, a, a legal question that implicates both of them. And so you need a kind of legal decider inside the executive branch. And this interagency adjudicatory role falls to the Office of Legal Counsel. The, the office that becomes the Office of Legal Counsel also starts preparing the opinions for the attorneys general that are still signed and, and published in the, the name of the attorney general over time. And as the attorney general's duties get focused more on prosecution, more on national security, more on a range of issues over time, uh, over an extensive period of time, you know, but post World War II and into the the kind of modern structure of the administrative state, what 
we see is that OLC took on more and more of this opinion drafting function, but it does not publish its opinions. And it was really in the Carter period that the Attorney General Griffin Bell directs the Office of Legal Counsel to begin to publish their opinions under their names. So that's when we have what begin to be the, the bound volumes of the Office of Legal Counsel opinions. And, and by publish, you mean make public, not just not just create a formal record within the executive branch? Yes, correct. And so there is both a formal record inside the uh Office of Legal Counsel of all of its opinions, and then select opinions are chosen for publication starting in this Carter period. And in contemporary legal scholarship, there's kind of this dominant conception of what executive branch legalism or executive branch legal review looks like. And it's this idea of this court-like office inside the executive branch, the Office of Legal Counsel, that is a centralized decider of legal questions through formal published opinion writing. And and that kind of starts the the motivation for the project was exploring, you know, is this OLC the myth or the man? And the argument in the paper is that this dominant conception did have a pretty close approximation on the ground during the Carter period. And I, I dig into that because it's kind of a, an underexplored institutional history of OLC and of presidential legal advising, but that there is a different conception that is more prominent today. And so the, the paper is really trying to explore how do we understand the fragility of this kind of OLC supremacy model or this, I, I call it the formalist structure in the paper, that it's this court-like actor inside the executive branch. and. But what should we think about it normatively? So the paper tries to do some kind of conceptual, positive and and normative work and exploring changes in the structure of executive branch legal review. And just to uh, to answer also the question you asked about how the Solicitor General fits into all of this. So the Solicitor General, you know, represents the the executive branch at the Supreme Court and also uh, is very much the the leader and overseer of the executive branch's litigation policy and litigation positions in the courts of appeals. So you would expect one thing you might predict, and you and it's interesting that in the deep history of the OLC, originally that that or, or maybe before that, just before that, um, that it was an, uh, a solicitor general staff person who was helping write the attorney general opinions. But you you might expect that if you wanted someone to play this adjudicatory style role uh, of rendering a legal judgment about competing uh, theories of how the law should work out within the executive, um, that the SG is exactly who you'd go to, right? Because that, uh, it's, that person knows what it's like to work through legal materials in an adjudication-like perspective. They spend all their time litigating in the courts of appeals and the Supreme Court of the United States. And my recollection is, uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my recollection is that the Solicitor General is unique uh, among executive branch officials in that the, the SG is required by statute uh, to be learned in the law. Um, and I don't think that requirement applies even to the attorney general. And that's and that's very much consistent with the foundations of the office, that it starts out as a role that is an assistant solicitor general. And I think over time, because the uh, the work of the office grows, it becomes a, an independent office and structure inside the, the Justice Department. 
So there's just too much work to do for it to be like, why didn't it just stay within the SG's office? It's interesting that it migrated away uh, from the SG to be the separate and the OLC. I mean, the people who've been in that, the head of that office, um, the number of them who've gone on to be federal judges, for example, Jay Bybee, uh, uh, Antonin Scalia, I'm sure there are others. Um, uh, right. It, it's a, it's been an impressive. Chief Justice yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. So, it's been an impressive roster of folks. And and there was in the past a, a fair bit of back and forth as well between people who headed the Office of Legal Counsel and who headed the Solicitor General's office. Um, so, the roles of the two offices have become quite different over time. And so the the role of the Solicitor General's office today is really uh, to take charge of and lead the development of the litigation positions of the the Justice Department. The Office of Legal Counsel's role is more inward facing Mm. to the executive branch. And so it is again, under this dominant conception, the idea is that it becomes the court when there is no court deciding these questions, right? That's kind of the, the myth of OLC is, and, and very much what on the ground, it it plays in a extensive way in the, the Carter period and in a uh, more modest way over time is that when there are questions, often questions that will not reach a court for various just disability reasons, uh, that there is a formal legal decision that's reached in a kind of, you know, sober digging into legal argumentation and legal sources manner inside the executive branch, right? You could see that as kind of the, the idea behind the, the formalist structure, that conception of executive branch legal review is that we have what Jeremy Waldron in the separation of of powers context has called articulated governance. So we have these kind of sequential phases of uh, decision making with by different institutions with integrity to their institutional role. So he's talking about it in the context of the the separation of powers between the branches. And you could see the, this kind of dominant conception of OLC is that it now serves that role inside the executive branch, that we have this kind of articulated form of governance even within the executive branch because we have this court-like structure that is issuing formal opinions on legal questions, many of which might not reach the courts. So, so I want to back up just a little bit um, because, again, I think the, the major problem that you're addressing is is pretty easily stated. and And now we've got at least some understanding of these four different offices. You know, the White House counsel is the kind of the day-to-day lawyer of the White House uh, dealing with all kinds of issues. Uh, the the OLC is issuing kind of, well, not just formal, but but also formal legal opinions on questions which would affect uh, uh, um, the uh, interpretation of statutes, the uh, interpretation of constitutional limits, et cetera. Within the whole executive Within the whole branch. executive branch, the, the Solicitor General is representing the administration's positions when it comes to uh, when, when when it goes to court, at least to appellate courts. So, you know, there there are these different entities, and it's kind of it's kind of counterintuitive for people because you know I guess the model most people are used to thinking about maybe like a like a um, a um, uh, what corporate counsel's office. What am I thinking of? Uh, you know, legal counsel, in house counsel in in a corporation. For and we don't consider those. You know, it's not like most corporations, as to my knowledge, have separate 
institutions within it, separate entities within it that do different kinds of legal work. It's all within one. So we can get into why why these distinctions. Go, Go ahead. Well, well, I was just going to say, and of course, all of the agencies have their own general counsel that right. is kind of that in-house counsel. And so one of the things that you see uh, during this formative moment for, for OLC is also the the growth of general counsels inside the agencies. And so part of the move in, um, in the Carter period by Attorney General Bell to try to kind of fortify this formalist structure, this role for OLC is in part because it's protecting a kind of centralized power for the Justice Department as a legal decider, notwithstanding what is a proliferation of these GC's offices and um, and you know very strong capable lawyers in the agencies as well. And there's a there's a corresponding, as I understand it, there's a corresponding issue with respect even to litigating in appellate courts that that there are some agencies, the PTO, for example, with independent uh, litigating authority, um, such that the SG is not the necessarily uh, the representing that agency or executive aspect in court. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, if you look at the kind of congressional testimony during this time when the Attorney General Bell is, is going to Congress, part of what he is going to Congress about is expressing concerns about this growth of independent litigation authority to the agencies. And just to, you know, to draw on a current example, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has uh, before the D.C. Circuit Independent Litigation Authority. So as it's the constitutionality of its structure has been challenged in the D.C. Circuit, it's the agency developing its arguments. If that were to go to the Supreme Court, it would then be the Solicitor General that would decide on on the arguments. Okay. Now, in my continued effort to kind of back up just a little bit uh, uh, to to state this this problem, um, as an aside, as an aside, my one and only direct point of disagreement with you, Daphne, yes. <laughs> is is your uh, decision to use the word decider rather than decision maker. But we will come back to we we we, we can come back to that decider. Um, um, uh, uh, like the word normalcy, as far as I know, was coined by a president um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a fit of malocution. Is that a word? It see, is now. See, isn't that ironic? You see the irony? You see what I did there? <laughs> That's all you did there. Yeah, yeah. Did. Uh, anyway, um, but, but the, the basic idea is this. Like the president is executing the law. The president's going to be doing a lot of stuff, implementing statutes, but also has authority under the Constitution to do things. And, and so how does all this fit together when the president wants to, say, drop bombs on a country or send forces somewhere or arm some group or even implement, um, you know, create federal exchanges in a health care program? Like, how do, you know, there are... Or as we were talking about with Mila Sahoni the other day, engaging in certain levels of enforcement, um, right. you know, in a more systemic fashion, figuring out what's the best reading of the statute, right. how, what's the best way, therefore, to execute the laws faithfully. Well, with the immigration laws that were challenged in the Texas yeah. litigation, you know, the, so the, the president's saying, like, I can't possibly deport everybody who's guilty of this crime. I'm choosing to announce a policy which which describes the, the enforcement priorities that I'll have. And how am I going to do that sensibly? Can I, can I do that within the law? What does the law require? Yeah. So the president needs advice about all of these things. Sure. And so, so the basic question is, how does the president determine what law binds him or her? And how does the president interpret that binding law to translate that law into action or to engage in actions within the boundaries of, of the law? And so your paper goes into um, something others others have talked about, but not in quite the same way. Uh, this question of like, how formal is the structure? You know, does, is the president somehow responsible to the law in a way that, you know, there are people who are just pronouncing what the law is and the president 
feels or acts as though he or she must be bound by those determinations? Or is there a more, you know, the president is getting advice from different quarters more informally about like what the law is and then makes a decision about what, you know, in in the context of politics and law and other things, decides, you know, by all lights, this is kind of what I should do. Yeah, and, and in part it's to challenge that very strong separation between the idea of uh, a presidential politics and and law, because law is is not really anything until it's interpreted, right? And so the how you structure the institutions that interpret law for you is part of what is presidential power. And so part of what we see over time is changes in the structure of legal interpretation inside the executive branch, responding in part to presidential priorities and needs over time. And one needn't be as cynical as uh, Richard Nixon, um, in fact, not even close to as cynical as Richard Nixon. But it helps. um, To (laughs) to recognize that that when he said, uh, you know, if the president does it, it's not illegal, right? Right. That there's something in, there's, there's something in there about the endogeneity of law and the presidency as bringing the law into action, right? Um, that there's something in there that's real um, yeah. and, that isn't, and that isn't bad or good, I suppose. It's just um, the way the world actually is. Well, the most right? powerful part of this, well, I don't say the most powerful part of this piece, but, but the, the example that gave me, that kind of motivated in my head the thinking about all this stuff was was the story that you tell Daphna about the Carter administration administration's reaction to Watergate, right? By saying, you know, we're going to set up a structure by which there will be formal legal opinions issued from OLC, and this was worked out between the Attorney General, who I guess concluded that that, that he could not bind the president completely. Was that that was part of the story, right? That the what was it that the that the right? So Carter campaigns on an idea that there will be an independent attorney general, which right. was something that that Congress had uh, been looking at as well post Watergate, and basically comes comes to power and chooses Griffin Bell, who was a court of appeals judge for his attorney general. And Griffin Bell asks the Office of Legal Counsel actually for an opinion on whether there could be an independent attorney general, an attorney general protected by uh, by term and uh, and protected from at-will removal by the president. I feel like this is an issue that's going to come up again. And OSC concludes that that would violate the separation of powers. And and both for legal reasons and also for more practical political reasons, you do see Bell kind of coming to the conclusion that there is an important role for the attorney general that is not entirely independent of the politics and um, and the, the attorney general very much is in a, a policy implementation and uh, and decisional role as well. And so he relies in part on the structures, the offices within the Justice Department that he sees as capable of a form of independence that is different from what the attorney general uh, can or should achieve. So, so even if you're not a unitary executive person, you would see reasons why the attorney general should be more responsible to the president than maybe some other officials would. But within the Department of Justice, you can create a structure which is kind of independent from the attorney general, much in the way that the independent counsel within the uh, 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 within the DOJ is meant to be independent. And that can achieve some of your objectives about the independence of the legal advice that the president gets. And this is what Carter ended up doing, right, is creating the system of kind of formal responsibility to OLC opinions, although not perfectly, 
as you point out. Right. And certainly Carter doesn't create the, the OLC structure, uh, but but he fortifies it. And so you right. have a, an avowed priority of the attorney general is that there's going to be more opinion writing, more opinion requests to OLC from the president and the attorney general and more opinion writing by, uh, by OLC. And so the opinion function of OLC kind of blooms during this time. And the, the attorney general for the first time directs OLC to start publishing its own opinions as the, the precedent of the executive branch. Daphna, but I took your, I took your point to be more that what, what Carter changed. Yeah, there, there's all of that, but that, that also it's the attitude of the president toward the OLC's opinions, right? That, that the, that the president took the attitude that those OLC um, opinions were, were binding, if, if not all the time, were, were binding in a way that certainly that President Nixon's statement issues, right? That the, the president can do anything. This is just advice, right? That this difference between advice and saying what the law is, you know, the more Marbury approach to, to uh, OLC, like that, that is what I took to be the formality uh, part of what and, you and argued. That's, so there is over time, presidents have different relationships to, to their attorneys general. And so, you know, before the, the Office of Legal Counsel comes into being, you do have the, the attorneys general engaging in this formal opinion writing. So there is the, the, opinions of first the attorneys general and then the office of legal counsel are understood to be binding unless overruled by the president and we, and there is an instance i talk about in the paper where the president does decide to overrule an olc opinion president but, carter right but but they are right. but they are generally understood the kind of uh, norm inside the executive branch is that these opinions are are binding unless overruled by the president. And so then there's a, the the discretion comes on the front end of are you going to go to OLC for an opinion? The question I had before, just to make sure I understood what Daphna said, was that because this is happening in an environment where we know that uh, Attorney General Bell is telling the head of OLC, what was his name, Harmon? Yeah, John Harmon. So so he's telling Harmon. And it's clear we're going to ramp up the output of formal uh, and published OLC opinions. That's happening at the same time. The president's attitude toward that output is I'm not going to be going and overruling these things on a regular basis. That would defeat the whole purpose, right? I'm going to be largely driving in the lanes that OLC is painting on the road. um, And that's going to restore confidence and credibility in the legality of my administration's behavior, which we really need um, for the national psyche and for other reasons in the aftermath of Watergate. And to accomplish our agenda. This is also Daphne's distinction between kind of like wholesale benefits versus kind of retail policy making. You're giving up some retail policy making authority because you're binding yourself to this, but the benefit that you're getting is increased legitimacy that you can then use to enact your broader agenda. Right, right. Okay, so we, I have the history right on that in terms of, yes. okay, um, I mean, I think a real benefit of this paper is giving people the, a look at this history in a very considered way that turns out to be, I mean, I, I'm not trying to merely be arch, I might be a little bit arch, but I don't, <laughs> I, I feel like we're going to, in the not too distant future, be living through another one of these events, right, where we're going to be dealing with the aftermath Right. If you were right, if someone were writing a different paper a few years from now, the title wouldn't be the law presidents make. It would be the mess presidents make. <laughs> right. Um, and, and and figuring out how you deal with a post mess scenario <laughs> where you need to you need to breathe life back into the rule of law. Will there be another Carter? Like, will the next president be Carter in terms of the formality? And a fascinating part of this to me is, you know, Nixon's a lawyer. 
right? JD, lawyer training, right? Yeah. Um, Carter isn't, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, obviously, President Obama, a lawyer. Um, uh, President Trump, not. Is right? he not a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and has a businessman's instrumental attitude toward a bunch of people have made this observation yeah. that there's sort of a, 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 a high power business guy, but has an attitude towards can have, not all of yeah. them do, but can, you can have a more swashbuckling I was say real estate developer attitude yeah, in particular. Where, yeah. where law is very instrumental and, and right. not, and that's not a rule of law sensibility, uh, that I think really comes off basically off of every page of this paper. This is law is a rule of law is an important, meaningful thing yeah. that needs to be vindicated in a real lived way. Right. Um, so anyway, sorry to get on but, a tirade. But, you know, I do, I do think that there's a real question that, that hopefully the, the paper does some work to, to explore that of, could we go back to that moment? Because the structural reasons why I think that formalist structure is so fragile today. I don't see those going away. And I'm not sure that they should. I'm not sure that we should want a court-like structure inside the executive branch as the mode of legal decision-making on the questions of high salience to the president. So the the paper is in part an attempt to to explore and, and maybe challenge some of those intuitions as well. Can you talk a little bit about the um the 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 move from you know what you call formality to what you call porosity or you might call informality? Um, uh, I, I, I don't know if you want to do it like as a consequence, you know, within the story of the torture memos, for example, which you. If, if you don't say it out, you know, explicitly kind of tainted the um, reputation of the OLC as an authoritative legal entity. Obama's then creation of this lawyers group to examine uh, the legality of various national security positions. I like, thought George H.W. Bush created the lawyers group. Yeah, the lawyers group did, was not created under Obama, but it, oh, okay. it definitely yeah. grew in, in regularity and, and role under Obama. So, so much like... Um, yeah. uh, much like Carter takes advantage of a pre-existing OLC structure and makes something much more important of it, um, maybe the President Obama took the lawyers group as a pre-existing structure and made something much more important. It, of it. Is the lawyers group? So this is part. Maybe I read it too quickly, and and I'm not familiar with it. Is the lawyers group a, kind of an ad hoc committee of of legal representatives from different places in the executive branch that get together and render advice? Not exactly like the. Well, you do have like. Um, representatives from different entities on the National Security Council. Is it is it informal in that way or how does it work? Right. Yes. So the lawyers group is the the collection of the general counsels from the national security and intelligence agencies, as well as the the legal advisor to the NSC and the uh, the head of OLC. And and that's exactly right. That is a pre-existing structure that takes on kind of new regularity during the, the Obama administration. So, so maybe to, to step back and give you the, the kind of conceptual shift and, and then some of the, the underlying reasons for it that, that I posit in, in the paper. So the, if we think about this kind of formalist structure as fundamentally about a centralized legal decision maker... <laughs> Yeah. in the Office of Legal <laughs> Counsel, uh, issuing formal and authoritative uh, legal opinions in, in writing. 
porous legalism is kind of the unwinding of those institutional commitments. So it is, instead of centralization, what we have is a diffusion of legal power. There's kind of multiple sites of ambiguously overlapping legal authority. And so a structure like the lawyers group, you have um, these lawyers coming together, striving towards consensus-based decision-making with consensus somewhat under uh, defined or specified in, in the, the public material on how the lawyers group functions. And you have a, a pretty stunning decline in formal opinion writing over, over time. So you have in the, the four years of the Carter administration, there's something like 380 published opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel. By the end of the eight years of the Obama administration, it's more like 65 opinions that are published from the Office of Legal Counsel. Yeah, so these, these graphs you have are pretty stunning. Yeah. And, and one important point to just keep in mind is that both of these models, the kind of formalist model and the porous legalism model, they both are always there. They both coexist under any administration. It's not that any administration has created them or relied exclusively on one or the other. But the argument is that we can see a prominence of a particular conception of executive branch legal review, and that prominence changes. So the Carter period is this example of a pretty close on the ground approximation of what this formalist structure would look like. And what we have in the Obama administration, I argue, is the prominence of, of porous legalism. And so I, I use the, the two administrations to illustrate what these models could look like as approximated on the ground. And then to explore why is it that we've seen this shift, the kind of vulnerability or the fragility of the the more formalist structure of executive branch legal review. And it's in part, as, as you say, the, the idea that there has been a, a reputational damage to the Office of Legal Counsel coming out of the, the torture memos and, and the opinion writing during that period. And it is also because of, I think, broader structural dynamics about the policy and political context in which legal questions are arising today. So help me understand, I mean, one way to do, if your main focus is, um, uh, uh, let's say my main objective is, I want to restore the credibility of OLC because OLC is a source of credibility uh, for the legality of the administration's behavior to the outside world. And and Um, this is maybe a place just to, um, I don't mind interrupting you, Joe. Right. But yeah, obviously, no, but but also also the reason, you know, it's not just that, but it, it can be uh, a, a tool to to try to immunize executive branch officials for their conduct. It can be an attempt to um, to to centralize control right um, over policy making decisions by making them in OLC. So Daphne goes through a whole bunch of different justifications why you might want to do this. Yeah. Right. And, and it just seems to me that if you if your focus is um, if your focus is that right. You could say, ah, okay, so I need to um, I need to learn some of the lessons of Griffin Bell about uh, how I insulate this entity from interference. I need to make sure that the people who are working there are engaged in certain kinds of um, certain kinds of observing certain kinds of norms, right? So, and you do with Jack Goldsmith and his undoing of the torture memos uh, to a degree, right? Um, Absolutely. You, you get some of that repudiation. You might yeah, say. yeah, you get some of the restoration of the credibility that is internal to the the sort of a, the what a lawyer might think of as uh, a lawyer who focuses a lot on appellate work, which is sort of what law professors wind up doing. Uh, most of us. Um, uh, you, you you could see why that would be the move right? at a time right. when there would be some increased demand for formality. Yeah. 
And right. so, and that move gets made, right? But it's and, not and the only move. You absolutely do see that. And you see Jack Goldsmith coming in and uh, reinstating the longstanding and, you know, norms and discipline of the, the office and its approach to its opinion writing function. And you see the best practices memos that come out at the end of the Bush administration and at the beginning of the Obama administration as well. Uh, the, there are also, though, I, I think shifts in both the political context in which legal questions arise and also in the more internal to law understanding of lawyers about what it is that's their role in these decision-making processes that I think chips away at the um, the desirability of, of the, the formalist model. So I think, you know, thinking about an analogy to Chevron, not as a a theory of statutory interpretation, but as a theory of institutional design, that if we think about part of what the idea of Chevron is, is that there are these boundaries where you can use legal sources and legal interpretation and understand the parameters of discretion, but that within those boundaries, it's not clear that we want legal work to be the only work getting us to an answer and that there is an important role for policymakers and political actors in deciding what that space within that discretion should look like. And so it, I, part of the paper is a, a move, a description of a move away from a kind of one right answer approach to what are often very complex uh, and ambiguous legal questions to a more iterative, a more intermingled process where lawyers are doing hard, thorough work trying to unpack complicated and somewhat indeterminate legal sources, but not necessarily using law as the sole means of figuring out where that discretion will lead. Now, now here's where, and you'll have to forgive me, this is where the, like the mathematician in me is, uh, sees something which looks kind of complicated. You know, it seems like, you know, we've got these structures, we have the different kind of decision-making modes, we've got all this, and, and I'm just searching for like simplistic modalities that are coupled, you know, that are, that are joined together and producing this complex structure. And so for me, as Joe and I already talked about in the pre-roll, I was driven to try to find a two-by-two box uh -huh. that, that helps to make some more sense of of the uh, of what you're observing and describing conceptually as one thing porosity versus formality and, and, and before i get there though just, when i thought about porosity i thought of all these synonyms for it that seem to capture different aspects of it so there's like informality um uncertainty realism or pragmatism all of those seem to be opposed to formalism but with but capture a slightly different um, slight, slightly different ideas about why you would want to move away from formal structures. But uh, putting that aside, so let me just use informality as the opposite of formality, and it can mean any of those things. And so I thought, I saw in the paper the distinction in at least two different dimensions and then two different reasons for why you would want to move around in them. And so let me try to capture this. So in terms of structure, you could have, uh, this is, you know, which institution should decide which question. You could be very formal about that, or you could be informal about that, right? So decision-making could be a product of, of deciding this, you know, this is like the formal separation of powers versus informal separation of powers in the court's 
separation of powers jurisprudence, right? Either if this if this kind of decision is not made by this institution, it's illegitimate, right? That would be a formal mode of thinking. Whereas you could think, well, decision making evolves like getting ideas from different institutions, and ultimately they're filtering to the president to the president in some fashion, and and that's legitimate because of the you know for other reasons, and you might call that informality. But another dimension to this is how decisions are made. And this is the traditional distinction between formalism and realism that you see in, in jurisprudence, right? That the formalist sees the, the, the this is the, the kind of formalist which doesn't really exist, but we can pause it for purposes of just making the distinction. The formalist is the person who sees a legal question as something that has a right answer, right? And, and so the, the goal is to, you know, it's not just craft, you know, lawyering is not just you know, uh, measured by the, the excellence of its craft, but, but by the correctness of its answers. And so what we want is here is, is for whoever makes the decision to do the law right. Whereas the informalist, or here you might say the realist, is one who sees law as having an open texture, to use Hart's terms, but, uh, but involving some amount of like policy judgment. And so ultimately the person making a legal decision is going to be making a decision within at least a zone of acceptability. And the excellence of legal reasoning is in kind of maybe aligning the way that we argue and in ensuring that we've thought about the relevant issues. And so if you align these two things on on two dimensions, you will have, you know, one position would be we should use formalist structures, uh, you know, and, and those institutions, those discrete institutions, the, the institution charged with making the decision should use formalist reasoning, right? This is like pure legalism to use mm-hmm. the jurisprudential mm-hmm. terminology, right? And that, would be a, and that would be the idealized OLC box. It would be the idealized Carter response to Watergate, even if it wasn't that, right? It's like we had lawlessness, right? right? And, the, and, the, and the complete utter opposite would be to move from that, what I'll call the chaos box, the lower right box, to the upper left box, if you like, if you think about this, right? That is the yeah. formal structure formally decided. In other words, we're going to make sure that the experts, you know, in the equivalent, the lawyerly equivalent of the white lab coat, reaches the right decision. And we're going to do that because this is the office which is going to be unimpeded by, yeah. by people who would try to try to change what otherwise be, would be a correct legal decision. And what's often true reasons. what's often true in these two by two boxes is two of them tend to uh, be weightier. Attend, yeah. People tend to gravitate toward one of the two and they're often in the opposite corners there of like, so you've got the formal formal, and then there's the informal realist, right? Yeah. And then, well, then there's what the, you just call the chaos box, which <laughs> I think is a, a sort of pejorative and funny, but, um, but I think also in, in many ways inaccurate. It's, um, it's inaccurate because it, it captures the, I also call it like the crit box, right? Or, and I also call it like the Obama box, you know, this is where the lawyers group would be. But, but then there's also like, you could have, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would push back that the, the kind of chaos box is the same as the, the lawyers group, because I, I do think that part of what you're seeing is a sense that there are, you know, that there are legal rules and that they are complex and that there's going to be more ambiguity on some questions than on others. There are going to be some clear questions, right? Some clear lines. There's going to be a lot where there's um, there's a lot of work to do in interpretation, and there's going to be more aggressive legal arguments that you could make and less aggressive legal arguments that you could make, and all of that is a zone of fundamentally judgment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That that the there's a risk, I think, if if we see it all as idealized OLC box and chaos box, that <laughs> that what we're missing is just the really significant role 
of judgment in all of this. And it's it's lawyerly judgment for the lawyers and it's presidential judgment for uh, the, the president and the presidential team in uh, the high political salience decision making. And so part of, I think, the challenge is to make sure that we're constructing categories that that create and recognize uh, a role for that sort of for both sorts of judgment. Well, I think that's the two dimensions helps with that a little bit because because one of the boxes is I'm very formalist about structure. In other words, I want the I want to define well the institution assigned to decide a particular question, but I'm informalist or realist about the about legal reasoning, right? And mm-hmm. and so I call that like the institutionalist box, uh-huh. and and that's a little bit different than you know the the crit box or the chaos box if you want to call it. It's also different obviously than the than the legalist box look the chaos box is the name that the f- that the person in the formal formal box right. gives to that other lower corner right gives and, to that other and corner. the name that's like that's the chaos and the box. name that the that the, that <laughs> the name that the person in the informal informal box would give the formal formal box is liar is <laughs> you know liars liars are delusional people who right. thinks that law has right answers right and that uh, but also that you can ever do a better job by isolating decisions to particular decision makers. So, right. know, there's it, no such thing as white lab. In fence. fact, from inside the yeah. chaos box, um, you might even call that upper box um, the Mayberry Machiavelli box, oh, right? Boy. They they sort of like to act like everything is neat and tidy and whatever. But the only reason you do that with any fervor is because you know that's the way to really put one over on people. Well, let me just say one more thing about this, and I want to turn you loose on it, but uh, is, is that um, one of the things I like about the papers, it helped me realize that what I'm searching for is not the box that I think is the right answer. It yeah. is the fact that different boxes seem appropriate at different times in order to solve different kinds of problems. And it opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, there may be times when formalist formalist, where you're pretending at least like there are right legal answers, or even maybe trying to cabin president so that they're it's really hard to say that there's a huge zone of discretion or a lot of open texture it may be the right response to particular kinds of social problems and so it occurs to me that not only do we have these two dimensions but we also have two dimensions or two different types of reasons why you might want to move around those four boxes one of those is formalist like there is just a right answer executive authority is of this type and there is a right answer to how these decisions should be made what kind of structure should we use and what kinds of you know what kinds of legal reasoning we should use but there's also a more informalist kind of uh, approach, which is, and interestingly, I think Scalia ends up either in the formal formal box or the, somewhere in between, but has what I would call informal or pragmatist reasons, right? Because, and this goes through all of his jurisprudence, right? Which is that what we want is to secure accountability for decision making. And so that counsels in favor of discrete institutions charged with clear decisions that can be held accountable. Right. Right. And and um, and they should not try to transmogrify legal reasoning into something which is just politics dressed up. Right. It should be use clear legal methods. And he does that not because he thinks that, like, you know, it's written in the stars that it has to be that way or executive powers of the kind that has to be exercised that way, but because democracy demands that kind of accountability. So, you know, in other words, the the formal formal box is a means of achieving a certain broader democratic principle. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and I think you could see that the formal formal box could be a means of achieving different sorts of ends. Right. That, right, that you could right. see it as achieving democratic principles. You could see it as achieving a form of control over a legal argument without with less of a space for disagreement and, and a difference of, of views and of expertise coming into the analysis. Right. Right. So I, I think that the, the institutionalist box, it's important to see that either 
a kind of OLC supremacy model or a strongly consensus driven lawyers group model. Those are those are two different versions of what that institutionalist box might look like. Yeah. And and they privilege different different things, right? They the the strongly lawyers group approach it privileges a, an idea of bringing expertise from other agencies into the decision-making structure. Um, the the formal kind of OLC supremacy uh, approach privileges a, a structure and a process that looks more like a court and produces something that's more familiar to us as you know a formal legal opinion. So the the institutionalist box there's there's a lot going on in there and there's a lot of different different approaches you could take in that box, right? It's certainly the one where I'm the most comfortable. Maybe because of my training, maybe because of my mindset about the nature of law, um, and my kind of attraction to uh, this is like the Calabresian idea that I was associate with with uh, Guido Calabresi, right? That that if we could just get the right decision making structures, people want to be good and they'll make the right decisions uh, in general, right? I mean, it's a matter of like teeing things up so the right decision maker with the right incentives makes the right decision. Um, and again, you were calling the institutionalist box. For the form, the more formal institution, right. but the more informal, realist inputs and and um, right. It's the it's the recognition, scope. yeah. It's the recognition that a legal decision has is made in a in a with open texture. That there is a. It's basically assigning irreducible political or what you might call policy making decision within legal constraints to a particular institution. But, and mm-hmm. and if I could explore the upper the upper right hand box as I'm envisioning this, that's see I'm envisioning um, a different the podcast means it's the perfect one for exploring like multi <laughs> dimensional charts. Are, are you planning to post this for this matrix? Yeah, maybe one day. Maybe yeah, one you, day. You, we need something in the show notes. But but um, so so if you're if you're thinking um, informal institutional arrangement, but populated with people who take a formalist attitude toward legal analysis and legal uh, output. Right. Right. Um, I, I guess you That could... seems the least justifiable, doesn't it? Well, um, I'm not sure. It, it, if, you're, if your worry is accountability, um, it's going to be harder for you to understand how the answer was arrived at. But if you really believe that's the way the law was, it wouldn't matter whether you had a, a formal institutional arrangement or an informal institutional arrangement, because the answer is going to be the same either way, right? Um, you're, if you really believe that's how the law works. Well, unless you're kind it, of a pirate. This is, I associated this a little bit with Nixon, who might have, you know, although he says that whatever the president does is, is legal, ultimately you wonder if there aren't some, you know, some kind of pre-realist people with fixed ideas about the Constitution and law who nonetheless say, well, you know, let's hide our illegality. <laughs> <laughs> right by uh, through this obscure process, and and that's what makes the, you know the Carter administration resort to moving that box to the. Yeah. Now, now this is all my stuff, so I like Daphne. I don't know if this is congenial to to your project or not, but it's certainly what ma- what I thought of when I when I saw your reasoning about structure and about legal thinking uh, yeah. coming together to describe a, a, a shift in priorities and reaction. And what I really liked about the paper is it helped me to realize again that that. It's, I didn't have a preference for a particular box, even though I might have thought that I would have before huh. reading your piece, right? That, that you, the way you describe this history and the way you describe the, 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 the many dimensions of, of presidential wants, right? What, what are they trying to achieve? It made me realize it's a much more complex question than I originally thought. The, the boxes helped me think about it better, but, but, um, but, but you, get, you left me kind of agnostic about right, what the right choice is. Yeah, and I think part of it is also to see that 
understanding the, the frailties, we understand the frailties of one model better by understanding the strengths of the other, right? It's not that either model solves everything that we want a, a structure of executive branch legal review to solve, but there's distinct biases or distinct risks that are embedded in, in each structure. Now, it has become more prominent, at least I, I think it's fair to say, uh, it's become more prominently noticeable recently that um, the, the porous model um, is more vulnerable. Well, let me put it as a question and see what you think of this. Is the porous model more vulnerable to um, the president being someone with exceptionally bad judgment? Um, or to put the question a slightly <laughs> different way, which of these models is a better way to go at things if you want to plan for the occupant being very bad at his or her job as opposed to being very good at his or her job, where the rule of law is a big part of that do, job. Do you mean having good or bad judgment, or do you mean being a, a familiar with legal constraints or not, or both? Well, I, I think in the in the person of the presidency, given that one of your principal responsibilities is to faithfully <laughs> faithful execute execution the laws, law, right. <laughs> um, I, I think it's kind of hard to wedge those two things sure. apart, right? Sure. Um, being good at the job has to include, I would think, um, good judgment at faithfully executing the laws in, in so, a rule of law regime. Yeah. So let me say two thoughts on that. One is that I think either structure can help a president reach a reasonable judgment and neither can compensate for the absence of sound presidential judgment. We uh, Part of the, the problem is that I think we can't look to the internal structures of executive branch legalism to compensate for the absence of presidential judgment um, and and that we need to have a plurality of institutions of accountability that executive branch legalism is just one of to do the work of trying to uh, check an unreasonable an unreasonable president and and we're and and there's vulnerabilities to all of the potential checks on that the the risks of the formalist structure, I think, are in some ways potentially heightened if you have a, a president who is truly, um, you know, I talk about it for, for a rational president, there's these kind of plurality of objectives that a president's trying to achieve, and they involve getting capable legal counsel, building credibility, uh, engaging in various forms of, of control, whether we think about it as control over legal policy or control over the bureaucracy or control over the disclosure of legal advice. And so in a rough sense, you have a rational president kind of optimizing, trying to uh, make, make institutional commitments that are advancing these somewhat inherently intention goals. If you're just trying to maximize uh, power or control, you might see the formalist structure as quite risky. That the the formalist structure, the dangers there are that it is potentially more susceptible to capture, whether it's uh, political capture or ideological capture, because uh, you put a couple strong lawyers in there with with views of executive power, for example, as 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 we have seen that are um, that are quite 
aggressive views of executive power. And there's a, there's a lot of strength to what the, the formalist structure can achieve. You also have the risks of insufficient knowledge or insufficient access to expertise from other agencies. And if you have a strongly formalist OLC that is less interested in that that knowledge or expertise from other agencies, that becomes a danger as well. And and you we saw during the um, you know with the the BIBU memos, the the structure can develop modes of what was called close hold. So, you know, you don't circulate drafts of opinions within the executive branch that, that fuel secrecy, not just vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the public, but also within the executive branch as well. So in terms of whether one is a more dangerous model in the absence of sound presidential judgment, I, I think you could argue that the a strongly formalist OLC is is not it's not really safer than a, a porous legalism model. It's also a sense in which the the uh, the formalist of today is free riding on the legitimacy gained by the formal structure of yesterday. Absolutely. Right? So, so if you know after the that, that's the reason why you 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 see these you know these efforts to repudiate and to rebuild the formal structure because a formal structure that is you know been uh, castigated for bad legal decision making or bad policy, or you know, it doesn't even have to be in the legal regime, is not going to have much power, right? It's po the power of a formal structure comes from, uh, I, I think, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm being too broad here, but comes from uh, the approval of actions in the past. Either it's done a good job cabining, or it's made good decisions, or something else. I, but I'm trying to think of good examples though, which which illustrate that. But one other idea that I had was that um, you know, you talk in the paper a few times about kind of the, the, the nature of kind of publication and the court-like procedures of OLC and how they contribute to, they can contribute to the benefits of, of formalism um, because they start to, the OLC starts to look like more like a common law court. It has precedent. So it has kind of guide rails on itself if it uses publication mm. and also for the president. Now, and one of the things I, I thought about here is that one of the virtues of, of common law courts, or at least as some people describe them, is that they get to better answers eventually through kind of a, they point towards efficiency, um, not because of any kind of inherent wisdom in those structures, but because of, uh, uh, of um, what's the right word? Um, diff different, uh, because of differential litigation, right? That, uh, so it's the lack of, it's precisely the lack of agenda control that people like Posner and others have argued that caused common law courts eventually to become efficient. Uh, you know, so in other words, inefficient legal rules get litigated out, right? They get litigated more often. Now, Cause I, it, right, because the inefficiencies are what attract the conflict. What attract the conflict. Now, this yep. may be wrong, and there's this is there's a huge, you know, branch of legal scholarship devoted to this. But it occurs to me that even if that's not exactly right, that that dynamic is not occurring in the executive branch, right? Because the executive is the itself is the one driving the agenda, and so that is a distinction. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think another distinction that's important to keep in mind is when, when we think about courts, the the judges tend to not be all from the political party that is in the White House, right? So you have some judges that, that your administration has put on the bench and you have many, many judges from various administrations over time. And with the leadership of the, the Office of Legal Counsel, that's a political appointee. It's a political appointee put in by, by this president. Now, one of the things that you saw in the, the 
kind of rebuilding the norms of of OLC uh, in the aftermath of of 9/11 when Jack Goldsmith and um, and then David Barron came in early in the Obama administration was reinstituting what had been a, a two deputy sign off rule on OLC opinions, which was in part an idea that that you do have more people looking and signing off on an opinion. But but again, most of the OLC has one political appointee that's the head of the office and three or four uh political appointees that that are deputies of the office. It also has one career uh, civil servant who who's a deputy. And, and then you have the the line attorneys who um, many of whom turn turnover from administration to administration. Yeah. So I think there's there's very strong professional norms in the office. There's a very strong commitment to doing the law right, to getting to to you know understanding as best you can the legal sources available to you and, and giving the, the best legal answer that you can give. But it is a different makeup as a kind of structure of law giving from inside the executive branch, even in its most formalist uh mode, it is very different from a court in terms of who the, the people actually populating the the decision-making roles in that office are. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there has been this norm of appointing to the cabinet one person of the opposite party that, that had been a norm for a while. And in, in, in the selection of, of independent counsels or lead prosecutors in cases involving the president and his or her administration, you know, I'll be cynical here. Like, uh, you know, the it was in, incumbent upon uh, Democratic presidents to appoint kind of people who were Republican, right, or Republican appointees as lead investigators um, to, to ensure that it's going to be fair and it's not going to be partisan. It also seems to be these days a norm for the uh, the person when the person is being investigated is Republican to to appoint a Republican investigator to be sure that it's not going to be a witch hunt. So I don't know how those two things shake out. But but nonetheless, is there anything like that in the OLC? Or, or should or has people have people proposed like that, that one of these political appointees should be of the opposite party, you know, for that kind of internal representation, which would be more like a, a court of appeals panel, you know, the, the research about how they Although I, that's just, I keep questioning myself because every time I think about one of these studies, I remember like an equal and opposite study that says <laughs> that this doesn't happen. Like, you know, when you have two appointees of one party and one of another, you, you get more moderate opinions. But then I feel like I've seen a more recent study saying maybe that's not so. I don't, I don't know. I think there is a tradition that the head of OLC is a very well-regarded legal professional and a, a serious, strong, capable lawyer. But every administration that has come in has put at the, the head of the office, you know, somebody that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was thinking more of the political deputies. You know, there's the one career yeah, person who's yeah. supposed to serve that role. And, and and that role seems really important, especially if you are of the legalist tradition and you think you just need somebody in there who's going to call them out when they get the law wrong. But if you think that all law has like a political kind of residuum, especially yeah. close law, then maybe you might, you know, if you've got a Democratic president there, maybe it'd be nice to have one Republican deputy. But I guess there's no tradition of that. It almost reminds me, too, of, of, ju- of judges and justices um, trying to hire law clerks across a spectrum of political right. yeah. uh, attitude, a right. similar and, sort of thing. And that was the approach that I know, for example, in the, the Carter period that the OLC tried to do. Um, you know, obviously, the, the line attorneys are, um, are civil servants, and so they're hired without regard to party or affiliation. Um, and so I think in, in any administration, you have um, line attorneys in OLC that 
are of, of both parties and are both of the the party of the sitting president and and of another party. I think you you have some uh, in OLC just as in the SG's office. You you have some people that stay from for many many years across administrations, and you have some people that that do the job for a few years and and then leave. So there's 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 some transience in in all of these offices, and there's probably more transience in the Office of Legal Counsel than in an office like the the Office of the Solicitor General. I'm not sure how much we, more we want to go into, but I mean, because there's so much in this paper. And yeah, we're at a crossroads. It's like, this is either going to be a four-hour episode <laughs> or we're, or we're going to have to stop. I could ask one more. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I could really ask two more questions. Like one, Daphna, like whatever we haven't covered that you think is essential to understanding this paper, um, I'd, I'd love for you to, to say. Maybe, maybe we've kind of covered enough where you think we've hit the main points. And But then secondly, um, should we be optimistic that some combination of structure and legal reasoning can save us? Like, because I'm totally pessimistic these days, right? That anything other than people standing up for norms can can save us from uh, from kind of a descent into a kind of legality which we wouldn't recognize. Um, and so I don't know if in thinking yeah. about this paper you have had similar musings, but what do you think? So, so you know, I do think in terms of what we see in the paper is a shift in the structures of executive branch legalism that is very much analogous to a shift that we've seen in the administrative state itself. So it's a trajectory away from this kind of adjudicatory mode of constraining discretion uh, and building legitimacy in, in governance. I think we, we've seen that throughout the administrative state, and there's a version of that that is being described in the paper. I, I think that legalism is not enough. And I think that's one of the things that, that we're seeing today play out in, in a host of, of, of ways that, that norms are, are crucial to, uh, to constituting a, a rule of law. The law itself is not going to give you a rule of law. Uh, law alone can't give you a rule of law. And I think that we, that we are seeing, we're all becoming uh, much more alert to the significance of, of norms in, in structuring governance as, as we know it and as we think it should be. So I, I think that the the structures of executive branch legal review are an important part of the story and it's a mistake to look to them as the whole story. And, and one of the important, I think, lessons of all of this is that part of what we want from a structure of executive branch legal review is a structure that is going to enable and facilitate a level of um, accountability and oversight from actors outside of that structure and, and outside of the executive branch itself. And there is this kind of inescapable tension between, um, you know, the, the role of presidential lawyers as on, on one hand, they are the, the confidential advisors of law to the president. On the other hand, there is really a making of public law inside the executive branch. And it's crucial for those outside the executive branch to be aware of, of what that law actually is. And so that's that's a challenge to uh, to both models of executive branch legalism. And, and one that I, I talk a bit in the paper about the, the ways in which I think the Obama administration tried to institutionalize transparency under the porous legalism model, but I think there's a, a ways to go before we get to uh, a, a sound institutional structure on that front. Awesome. Cool. I mean, well, thank you so such much. A, this such is amazing. A, such a readable paper and, and just like I said, it sets off fireworks within the mind, which the best, uh, the best papers do. So thank you so much for 
agreeing to come on and, and chat with us about it. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was really fun.